Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. We're back in Davos at the World Economic Forum, where we kicked off this podcast in 2020. I'm excited to share with you my conversations this year with amazing leaders who are driving global change. In this episode, I'm speaking with Sarah Keholani Gu, editor-in-chief of Axios. Sarah has had an impressive career across media outlets and is now leading Axios in its newsletter-first, multi-channel approach. As they expand into more local markets, Sarah is making sure reporters have a pulse on their community and build trust with their readers. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Sarah, welcome to the Women on the Move podcast here in Davos. It is great to have you on with us. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So let's start with your role at Axios. Can you tell us what it is you currently do and all your responsibilities? Yes, I'm editor-in-chief at Axios. We're a five-and-a-half-year-old news startup, American-based in Washington. Our newsroom is about 150 journalists. We mostly focus on newsletters. So our whole premise is that people don't have time to read the news, and that's something that we can, it's not a problem, but they're still interested in news, but it's really about how it's delivered. So we came up with something called Smart Brevity. It really distills the news to the most important essential elements of what you need to know, why it matters. Our newsletter writers are experts in politics, business, the local communities. We have local newsletters as well for cities. And we're rapidly expanding. It's been really fun to be part of a new startup. Oh, I love that. And tell us about your career before joining Axios and how you came up in the media business. I think a lot of news people feel it in their blood very early on. There's a passion and desire to understand the world, understand what's going on, understand what forces change our world and shape it and how people become powerful, how our government works. That was true for me as early as high school. One of those people was editor of the yearbook. And I really just moved my way across the country working at newspapers. I really started in newspapers and eventually landed at the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. And I think as time went on, I love being a reporter. I love breaking news. And over time, I realized that there was an opportunity for me to shape the news in a bigger way at a time when our digital forces were changing how people consume news, kind of what I started with. It's been really awesome to be part of that as well. I love your journey. So I did start out my career in journalism and wrote a newsletter for a company called Phillips Business Information, which was based actually out in Maryland. So I have a lot of appreciation and affiliation for the newsletter business. That was literally on paper, though, back then. It's hard work. It's a lot of work. And it really requires a certain kind of journalist who understands who is the audience they're speaking to. When you're a newsletter writer, you as a person are accountable to that reader. It's a real one-to-one relationship in a way that I think it doesn't exist in a lot of other news formats. It really is true. I remember I would write my name, sign it, at the end of every newsletter. I felt that personal connection. And if someone didn't like that week, they only had me to blame. So I want to ask you about Axios and its mission and premise. So Axios says it puts truth, trust, safety, and sanity in news. So how do you live up to that corporate mission? What does that mean to you? trying to solve a problem a little bit around the business of news and a little bit around the audience for news. We know that people really need information, but we're operating at a time when people don't have a lot of trust. They don't have trust in a lot of institutions, but in news, it's become very polarized. So what we've tried to do is really be transparent with our audience and say, we not only want to deliver to you in a different format, we are going to be clinical in our reporting and facts 
and delivery and be not right or left, that we don't do opinion, we don't have an opinion page. We want to attract an audience of all political stripes, of all backgrounds and interests, and give you the news that's essential for you to feel like you got what you need, you can move on. And if you want to go deeper, we have more coverage on our website. It's really a refreshing approach, and I think that's why we've been able to grow so fast. And people who read us say, I love Axios. It's not just, oh, I read it. I was walking with Ina Fried, one of our newsletter reporters. She covers tech, and people stop her and say, Ina, I read your newsletter. That's like the biggest compliment because, you know, they feel connected to her. They feel like they're getting news that they can trust. And I think that's an important model to build because people don't recall where they get the news, but they do know who they trust to deliver it to them. Yes. And I think in this polarization of our culture, they gravitate toward one side or the other. So to have that middle ground is so refreshing and we need that. And really it can drive an important voice in just our political discourse overall. Do you hear that back from readers or do you poll readers and do they tell you that, that it feels like that in between ground for them? They do. That's one of the things that they say they appreciate about us. I hear it from my family members who have been through the Trump years and our different polarized times in the U.S., where do I go? How? I'm like, hello, I run this news organization. You might want to check it out. That's the number one thing we hear. And it's not just us. There's been studies where different research organizations have tried to put different news organizations on a spectrum. And it's always nice to see Axios lands in the middle. That is great. So tell us about your goals as editor-in-chief for the organization. What is it you're trying to do right now, given how you know, relatively new the business is? Yeah, we have a few big goals this year. One of them, and the most important one, is we're really trying to grow big and local. So we've built, I think, a name and a profile in politics. But of course, where the gap is in journalism right now is in local news. And anybody who's seen their local newspaper decline knows what I'm talking about. There is an opportunity to rebuild trust. So it's not just politics, but what's going on in my community? How do I understand the issues that I'm going to be voting on? And unfortunately, a lot of local newspapers are a shell of what they used to be. And we have expanded the newsletter approach and hired local journalists in different cities to do a newsletter just for their city. So we're in 26 cities now, Chicago, we're on the West Coast in San Francisco, several cities in Texas. So the goal there is to figure out both the business model and the journalism model to make sure that we become an essential trusted source of news. And so that's a big mission for journalism. It's also a challenge to fix a business problem that we know is broken on the newspaper side. It's essential for democracy. Yes, the information definitely is. How do you fix that challenge? So if in the past those local papers were advertising driven from the local community, is that a model you would continue forward? Does reader subscription lend itself now? Maybe that's a different revenue stream or how are you thinking about that? Yeah, our newsletters are free, but they ad supported. And unlike a newspaper, we don't have a printing press to support. We don't have real estate. We don't have an office. So we have a real remote workforce approach that saves us a lot of money on cost. We don't have enormous staffs to start. We use illustrations a lot, not a lot of photography. That saves us some money, but still delivers the news. We're really lean in how we start. And then on the sales side, it's a mix of both local and national advertising. So at a certain level of 26 cities, you can scale advertising. So that's the model we're running at. We're excited. We also are excited about events. We're here in Davos doing events. We think local events are an opportunity for us as well. So the fun thing is we have a real startup mentality, so there's a lot to experiment with. And we'll learn from it each city we go into. That is great. Tell me about representation in the work that you do, both in terms of what you cover, but also in terms of the writers and the staff. 
How are you trying to really drive more diverse coverage in general? Right. Well, one thing your listeners may not realize, at news, it's essential to make sure that you have representation because we have to see the stories in your community. If we don't, we're failing at our jobs. And I think the news business has evolved. It hasn't always gotten this right. When I was first entering the news business, there weren't very many women, first of all. There weren't very many women at the top of the newspaper. And why that matters is because that's who makes decisions on what you cover. What is a story? What is news? And so just from that perspective, there was a lot of room to grow. So I think what I want to leave behind in journalism is to truly make progress on that. And that is not something that changes overnight, but it takes intention. It takes building a culture that appreciates that and lives it. And you're accountable for that, saying those things out loud. And the news business, unfortunately, hasn't done a great job. It does have a pretty bad track record overall in the industry. I would like to say at Axios, I'm really proud. I mean, our whole leadership team is incredibly diverse. And we're 34% non-white, underrepresented groups, LGBTQ. That's pretty rare in a newsroom. Most of them are about 20, 25%. We're not where we need to be, but that's something that I have talk about a lot. I want to be held accountable to. We're invested in it. We're doing a lot of different programs to address it. Because we're not hiring entry-level reporters, we're hiring expert reporters. That's important at the local level, like the newsletters I was talking about. It's also important when we cover stories like politics, global issues. You have to have reporters who understand what they're covering and bring their lived experience to that coverage. Otherwise, you know that you're missing stories. I'm thinking about how you're describing really embedding into a community and getting to know that. So what do you look for in reporters, especially as you're going local? Do they live in that community for years? Do they bring a set of relationships? What's important to you? Even as we've talked about the decline of local newspapers, what that has left is a lot of local unemployed journalists or journalists who aren't working in journalism anymore. They're doing public relations or something related. So our approach has been we only hire journalists who are in that community already and have been there for quite some time. We hire to start two-person teams, two reporter teams. We have editors as well and data viz journalists that are more centralized. But the approach is somebody who's already plugged in, who already knows all the power players in that community, who already knows the issues that matter to that community, who knows what's coming up, has a Rolodex that already can reach the people who matter. And that helps us get started. It helps us build awareness very quickly. If you get those people to read you, you will have everybody else. That must be really nice, actually, as a reader, to find maybe a journalist you really liked and watched, and when they were no longer working, they're back working for you. So that's a really nice feeling. So tell me how, when Axios was starting out, and you were learning about what didn't work anymore in the media world, and then tried a few things, perhaps in the first few years of the company, what were those learnings that you really wanted to put back into the business to make it a different media company for the current times? Well, I haven't been there since the beginning. I started at Axios about three years ago, but we were in a hyper growth mode at that time. We learned a few things. I mean, we gave ourselves the freedom to experiment. We are venture backed at that time. And so we had a lot of great resources at the time to figure out what is our hiring model. And although we got it all right at the start, we had to hire very quickly. So we learned from that, like there are some benefits to moving fast. When you're hiring, we doubled in size, more than doubled in size over 2020, 2022. So a two-year period. 
That's really fast. What we learned is you actually do have to stop at some point and create some structure behind it. So we're doing that now. I call it like a growing up phase. <laughs> like There was a growth phase and now there's like actually creating the structure to support the people that you have. That's more internal facing. I think that's just part of growing a business and growing a newsroom. But the thing that's remained constant is very intentional about creating the culture, a different newsroom culture than perhaps that existed before or that people have known in previous newsrooms. So I think that's been awesome to be part of. That is. And it sounds like it gives you a way to really distinguish yourself or differentiate from other mainstream big companies that have been around for a while. Do you find that? Yeah, that's an attractive reason also for recruiting. Think about, like, what is it that's different here? Well, you don't have to ask permission from 20 people above you. You can try new things. We encourage people to do that. And our reporters have taken that and had fun. You're writing a newsletter. You have to put a little bit of yourself in there, right? And so the ideas for what's a regular feature, how do you engage with your audience, they all have to be on you. We don't want to prescribe that. And I think it's been awesome because it's not only builds that reader-reporter relationship, but it also makes it unique to that community. We have reporters, for example, who are like, hey, it's a scavenger hunt. Where am I today? They take a picture of where they are in the community. That's a fun, small thing. But really, it's just an example of how the reporters have a freedom that maybe aren't allowed to have if you're in a much bigger organization to make it a little bit their own and reflect the community that they love. Mm, I love that. And how do you bring the digital experience to a newsletter? How do people experience that in terms of the content itself or visually engaging? We've grown, so it's not just the newsletter. We find that our newsletters are opened at a much higher rate than most others, I guess the industry standard. But we also have a site, we have social We really take that whole audience, we have events, we take that reader through the journey of inviting them kind of deeper into our world. So once they trust us and are reading us daily, that's incredibly valuable to us and we want to make sure they feel connected to the reporters. So we found that they come to our events, they are excited to meet our reporters in person, they feel much more connected to the journalism and they often are people who are giving us stories, ideas for the next newsletter. Tell me about maybe decisions you've brought into the newsroom about what to cover that maybe others wouldn't. But given what you've experienced and what you're trying to drive there, what's been different that you're trying to shape? One example that I think a lot of news organizations did is sometimes just have to let the news moment shape your ideas and your creativity about how you're going to address it and cover it a little bit differently. So, for example, after George Floyd was murdered, many newsrooms, we did a lot of inward reflection. One of our employees said, and this actually wasn't someone in the newsroom, said, like, why does the news team just cover shootings or violence or police brutality moments instead of the larger problem? And I thought that was a very good question and a challenge that we took upon ourselves. So out of that, we talked about it and came up with a series about systemic racism. We really tried to unpack the history in a deeper way. We would pick a topic, whether it be corporate world or education or science, and try to make sure that we could think about it in a broader way. Not everything needed to have an advertising reason for it. Sometimes, of course, in journalism, you just have to cover the story and you have to think about what can we help our readers understand that's news adjacent, but helpful for them to understand the bigger picture. I think that's an important role. It's an important job. And it pushed the staff 
in a way that maybe was outside of their comfort zone, but they rose to the challenge. So that's something I'm really proud of. We called it Hard Truths, and we've continued that series to today. And what has been the reception of that among readers? It's been great. I think they've learned a lot. I think it's also, as systemic racism has become more politicized, I think the challenge is how to make it relevant and where to take the coverage a few years after the fact. So it's not just about one incident, but to understand the larger story there. So it's been an example of the kind of journalism we can do that's a little bit more serious, a little bit deeper. Some people think that Smart Brevity, our format of a short read, means it's thin journalism, but it's not. There's all the reporting there. It's just packaged a little bit differently. So this is an example of breaking a little bit of the format, which I think you have to do. So I'm curious, as you were rising through the ranks as a journalist, what were some of the challenges you faced as a woman, as an Asian-American woman? What were the things that either you knew you were struggling with at the time or looking back you realized maybe it was harder? The news business is one in which you kind of sink or swim. As a reporter, you have to learn on your feet. You have to learn how do you do reporting. I went to journalism school. You learned a lot about the ethics and the law and role of the media and the impact of what you do. But the day-to-day, there isn't a whole lot of instruction. And I think as I move from reporter to leader, there aren't a lot of programs, at least there weren't at the time, to help you figure out, well, how do I make an impact? How can I be more effective? What do I need to know about how I communicate with people internally? What do I need to understand about the business side? I had to figure all that out myself. I've certainly made a lot of mistakes, but I've had to really rely on mentors to help me to get there. Allies, men and women, who felt like I had something else to give or I had something else to offer. And I've always been very curious. I think like a lot of journalists are curious, and I turned my curiosity of what was happening and my concern about what was happening to the business of journalism to try to come up with solutions. And I think you've spoken about confronting inequity for Asian Americans, particular in journalism. Can you talk about that? What have you said publicly? What would you like to see change? I think I'm a little bit unique, and I didn't always feel like I fit in, even as an Asian American. My mother's Caucasian. My father is Chinese, Japanese, Native Hawaiian. Our family is really more culturally Hawaiian. That was always important to me. When you don't see anybody around who's like that, my family doesn't speak Chinese. My family doesn't speak Japanese. I'm a fourth-generation Asian-American. I'm really more Pacific Islander than anything. And so I really consider myself someone of mixed race. And I think when you don't grow up around that, even among Asian-Americans who maybe have more of an immigration story, an immigrant story, or a second generation type of experience, it's hard to know who to relate to. I really saw the gender gap in the business and I related to that. What really changed my life was an organization called AAJA. It's called Asian-American Journalists Association. They had an amazing leadership program that I was a part of and maybe a little reluctant to even put myself forward. But what it was was basically a week-long talk about the talk you don't really have out loud, understanding cultural barriers, put our heads down, we work hard, we don't speak up, we don't try to be the loud person in the room, we don't try to be the smartest person in the room, we try to let our work speak for itself. Those are all a lot of things that I think a lot of Asian Americans can relate to. But we realized we were working in a work culture that didn't value that or didn't see that, didn't appreciate it, looked over it. So we had to learn those things from each other, from other leaders. We had to practice it. We had to reach out to each other and talk about how to deal with that in the moment. So it was a great cohort to have that group. And I'm just thrilled to say many of them have gone on to amazing other jobs at the New York Times, at CNN, at other places. It's a great phone-a-friend network for me. 
And how did it change your behavior? What did you do differently as a result of that in terms of speaking up more or making sure your voice was heard, which it needed to be? Yeah, I mean, it made me, for the first time, realize I needed to have a plan to be strategic about. I was strategic about everything in my reporting. This is kind of another job, right? So building relationships in the newsroom, it started simple. Like, when you come back from the program, thank the executive who paid for it. Send them a note. Take them out to lunch. Do it regularly. Ask for advice. Tell them what you want to do next. Say it out loud. I think now there's a lot more of that kind of support and advice for women and for other groups. And this gave me a little bit of a blueprint to approach it. It really changed my life. I wouldn't be in this job if I had not done that program. That's incredible. I mean, I hope more people can take advantage of something like that or learn from you as you're telling us now. So what does a diverse workplace look like to you? Tell me all the facets of diversity that you're trying to build and how will you know you've gotten there? Well, for news, I think it is making sure that we have journalists and editors who can cover the story with real authenticity and experience in relatability and those cover the topics that they're covering matters. So immigration, for example, or wage gap issues. And if they don't know, they have to be comfortable asking and getting out of their comfort zone. I mean, that's the essence of every reporter. So to me, I think about it's issues around race, it's issues around gender, LGBTQ. When you have issues come up around anti-trans hate or harassment going on, we have to have people on staff who can speak to that. And we have a great open culture where people can ask questions if they don't understand it or don't have experience with it. It's also about things like, frankly, like people with military experience, like journalists, they don't have a lot of that. And it's important because we cover wars and we cover veterans' issues when they come back. It shifts as the news shifts. So to me, it's about making sure that we're ready for it. We're ready for the moment. And we're talking about where we have some gaps and being really honest about it. So it's never going to be perfect, but it is an ongoing conversation. So I'm curious, given when you started out in newsrooms and now, What changes have you seen in terms of the culture, what's acceptable behavior or not, and have we come a long way? We have. Really thrilled to see a lot of women running newsrooms right now at The Washington Post, at Vox, NPR, many local newsrooms and online digital publications, television, you're seeing a little more of that now, and women of color. And I think who's at the top really matters because you're setting the tone of what's important and, like I said, how you approach Even the hierarchy of who makes decisions, who has a say. When you're in a newsroom and you're talking about what are we covering today, every newsroom has that meeting. Who's allowed to speak? Who's allowed to talk and bring their ideas to the table? That really matters. And I really think the Me Too movement had a lot to do with that. I think that that reckoning really needed to happen in order to push a change forward. For too long, I think if we're really honest, a lot of men held on to power at the top of newsrooms. And that set a tone. When I first joined news, people running newsrooms were men who had not a great family life. They had many wives. They had many divorces. And the women who were at the top didn't have kids. So that wasn't really inspiring about what was possible for me or for any woman or even what you had to give or sacrifice in order to be successful in your personal life. I'm glad to say I don't think that's true anymore. That is such good news to hear. So we talk a lot on this program about ambition. And I love to ask guests, are you ambitious? And if so, what have your ambitions been for over the course of your career? 
Yeah, I think I've been always ambitious, but I also feel lucky that I'm someone who I knew what I wanted to do at a very young age, so that gave me somewhere to run and focus on. I've always felt not just what I wanted to do, but I've had a passion for news since I was very young. What's great about that is that it's really an unending curiosity. So how do you get the story? What's happening next? How do I get the interview? How can I tell the world first about what's happening? How I help them understand the story? to then, how do we run this newsroom in a different way? How do we cover stories differently? How do I figure out the right talent? How do we figure out a new business model? We're moving into local. To me, those are all fun versions of the same curiosity, right? It's the same problem we're trying to solve. So I think I just love the challenge of it. It's not just a job. Journalism is essential to this country, to how we live, to our lives. And I feel very responsible for that. Am I small? part of it. And I want to make sure that it's trusted and it thrives. It's like a public service. It feels like a calling that many people like you had at a very early age or just loved the news, news junkies, had to tell the story and would do it no matter what it took, right? We'll find ways to tell that story. And I certainly appreciate that, having been on that side. But I can't even imagine a society without that. So it is great to see what Axios is doing. Thank you. I mean, we talk a lot about, like, we're in this moment of the war for truth. And I do think that's true. I do feel like that is perhaps more urgent now than ever. So where would you tell current and maybe future readers of Axios to find you? Where would you like them to engage with you? Let's see. I mean, I'm on all the socials. I'm in Washington, D.C. We have a lot of events. You can engage with me on LinkedIn. I try to stick to like what's new, what we're doing. I'm not big into personal Twitter or anything, but try to keep people apprised of new newsletters we're launching, new communities we're moving into. It's honestly the best job. So great to hear that. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's great what you're building. It's super exciting. And we just appreciate your telling us your story. Thank you so much for your questions and for being interested. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Sarah. I love that she's leading Axios to be a voice for readers across the political spectrum and that she's creating a diverse and inclusive newsroom where staff and readers feel represented. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.